sure, these are all great places to live. The question we're seeking to answer is how much fiscal resiliency does a state have? How many shocks can they absorb until it really begins to affect their economy? It affects decisions that businesses and individuals make to move to that state, and that thereby affects the tax base. And when do you hit that spiral? Illinois and New Jersey's fundamentals look very poor. This has been recognized by the credit rating agencies. There's a recent study that's come out that says the effect that these pensions are having on the overall fiscal picture may be irreversible in terms of the level of taxation that's going to have to be brought in, the extent to which taxes are going to have to be raised and revenues will have to be found and sustained over a period of time to pay for these unfunded obligations. What's the long-term effect of that? Will it drive businesses out? Will it drive people out? Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. I am here with my co-host for my favorite segment, What's on Tap, Kate Delanoy. How are you? Doing well. I'm excited to be here. I am excited as well. The beer today, uh, which I'm sure everyone wants to know about, is Duclaw's Sweet Baby Jesus, a chocolate peanut butter porter. So I have poured that. We'll go ahead and sample so we can provide our expert opinions when we close out here. Uh, But while we're doing that, why don't you let us know what's going on at Mercatus? Yes. So the big thing that I'm very excited about today, October 16th, Tyler Cowen's new book, Stubborn Attachments, is out. This is Tyler's kind of vision explaining why economic growth and prosperity is good for people all around the world. Um, If you follow Marginal Revolution, you may have seen some of the posts that Tyler has done. And all of the proceeds that he gets from this are going to be going to a man that he met down in Ethiopia over the summer. That guy is working on a business. He's already gotten enough money from pre-sales to put a down payment on a house. It's a really cool story. You're doing good by buying the book. Definitely encourage all your folks to check it out. Again, it's Stubborn Attachments, and it's available on Amazon. So fascinating book. Great cause. I'm personally excited about this one. I think a lot of people who follow Tyler know of him as a sort of polymath who delves into a lot of different subjects. So this is kind of exciting for me, maybe as a philosophy major, to really get Tyler's worldview on something as he kind of advances an idea in a really rigorous way. Definitely. And then we've also got some cool research coming out here from Chuck Blahouse. Some folks may remember him from his Medicare for All research over the summer, making a lot of news. Um, this one is looking at a the private sector pension crisis. So folks may not be as aware about this one. We know about the public sector pensions. Um, you know, I know that with fiscal rankings, we've talked a lot about, you know, how our state's doing and prepared to, to pay down all the the pension promises that they've made. And with private sector pensions, they're also not in great shape. And these are multi-employer pensions that Chuck is writing about, right? Right. So it's, you know, a bunch of employers have gone in together on these pension funds. And if they don't have enough money to pay out, it's a big question mark, right? I mean, does the government bail them out? Do we have the money to bail them out? You know, not not as exciting as uh, as stubborn attachments, but still a very <laughs> important issue. Um, and I definitely encourage folks to go and, and look for Chuck's paper on that. Agree that it's important. It's also kind of depressing right now. So tell me you've got something more positive to close us out. I do. So we are launching our first ever Econoween competition. I love it. Yes. So we have made our very talented designers here have made a lot of really cool economic stencils for your pumpkin. And so you, we are inviting everybody to join us in a pumpkin carving contest. So you can go to the website. Uh, I think we'll put the link in the show notes. And you can make your coolest econ nerd pumpkin. We'll be doing them here in the office as well. And then putting them on Twitter, hashtag econoween. We're going to pick a winner. And you'll get up to $100 worth of books. 
And also, you can do it all the way through November 1st. So Great for procrastinators like myself. Exactly. You can carve your pumpkin now. You can carve it on Halloween. We want to see all the pictures. Again, hashtag Econoween. Sounds good. I, I also love the hashtag, by the way. That's fantastic. Um, and while we're on the Halloween subject, I will shift us back to what everyone is obviously waiting for, which is telling them about the beer. Um, I was supposed to bring a pumpkin beer today. It did not work out for a variety of reasons, some of which my fault, some of which are not. Uh, but I think with a chocolate peanut butter porter, we are still kind of in a candy bar-like realm. So I think we're still a little bit on topic. I Yes, I would say that the best way to describe this is a Reese's in a cup. So I feel like it's definitely a solid October what's on tap entry. Um I enjoy this one. I mean, it's heavy because it's a porter, but really good flavor, drinkability, 3.75. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you on the rating, 3.75 out of five stars as well. This is not a subtle beer. It is exactly what the label says, chocolate, peanut butter, and a porter. Uh, but sometimes that's exactly what you want. So, Truth in advertising. Yeah, exactly. Duclaw nailed it on this one. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining us and giving us the rundown. I uh, hope you'll stick around. We've got a great uh, great conversation coming up with Eileen and Olivia, who you mentioned fiscal rankings. They were co-authors of the study. So some of our listeners may have already taken a peek at that. It uh, has already come out, but we're going to dive down a little bit into uh, some of the details and some of the interesting stories that they pulled out as they were doing the study. So looking forward to that conversation. And thanks as always for joining us. Cheers. Cheers. After more than a year of debating federal tax cuts, a return to trillion-dollar deficits, and the fiscal condition of the federal government, you might think there's not much more to say about the fiscal solvency issues in the United States. Of course, for those who follow state policy issues, there is still plenty to discuss spread out among 50 state government budgets. In fact, the Mercatus Center just released its fifth and final study of the fiscal conditions of all 50 states. The study ranks each state according to fiscal health and discusses trends from a decade's worth of data. Here to dive into that data, what it means for states, and what a path forward might look like are the study's authors. First, we're joined by Eileen Norcross, Vice President of Policy Research here at Mercatus and an expert on state policy issues. Thanks for joining us, Eileen. Thanks, Chad. We also have co-author Olivia Gonzalez here in studio. Olivia is a research associate at Mercatus and is the author of an ongoing series of articles diving into some of the interesting stories she discovered while conducting the research. Welcome to the show, Olivia. Thanks, Chad. So I'm going to start with a question that is probably so obvious to the two of you that you're wondering why I would even bother asking it. But it's probably the first question that our listeners might have, which is why bother doing this study in the first place, right? We're talking 10 years of data, 50 states. That's a lot of work. And I know it's been your all's life for quite a long time. So why even do this study in the first place? Well, we decided to look at the state finances because each year the states put out an audited financial report called a Comprehensive Annual Financial Report, or a CAFR. And that enables us to compare the state's with one another because they're doing the accounting on the same basis. So it's a nice set of data. People are interested to know, how is my state doing? While credit rating agencies already provide this kind of data, we wanted to operationalize the CAFR and draw out some basic measures that policymakers and the public could look to as flags for whether their state was moving in a positive or a negative direction. Yeah, another thing is that these CAFRs are technically publicly available, but they tend to be hundreds of pages and really hard to sift through for the average person or anyone really. For me, when I first got started, they were really daunting at first. So we just take 13 metrics from these hundreds of pages long documents to try to make it more accessible for everyone. 
It's funny that that's where you all go, because when I mentioned this study to a friend of mine who's a policy analyst, the very first question they asked is, but now who's going to read the CAFRs for me if you all aren't <laughs> doing this study anymore? So I, I actually want to maybe stick on that for a second and, and ask my follow-up question, which is, how do you guys even rank states against one another? So it sounds like you're looking at these CAFRs. I can imagine there are some situations where it's easy to say, oh, state A has a bunch of outstanding bonds and state B hasn't borrowed much. So, aha, state A is doing better than state B or vice versa. But for the trickier issues, how do you guys really get into the, the nuts and bolts of ranking these states and coming up with kind of an objective system that, that you can score states by? Well, we do a few things. We're relying on some metrics that are part of the financial metrics literature. So we apply those basic metrics to the short term, the medium term, and the long term. We want to know, do states have enough cash on hand to cover a recession? Are revenues matching expenses year to year? What does the long term look like? Are they issuing more and more debt? Do they have a lot of unfunded obligations? And then we do something uh, a little bit different. We break out those pensions, those unfunded pensions, and the healthcare obligations separately, and we evaluate them. This is an area where the financial reports have not been as good as they could be. Over the years, they have uh, not reported those unfunded liabilities on the books, not until 2015. And also, the way they measure them, we contest that. We say, hey, you should be measuring these things based on the fact that they're guaranteed to be paid. So we go in and we re-estimate those liabilities, and we produce what's called a market value of the liability. And we find that unfunded pensions are, in fact, uh, pretty large, even in states that are doing relatively well on other dimensions. I'm just going to dive right into the list. And I want to start at the bottom for two reasons. First, it leads to good news for later in the show. And as <laughs> listeners know, I like to, to end on a high note if I can. So I'm going to save those. And two, my, my beloved home state of Kentucky made it into the bottom five, and, and I would like answers. So you don't have to talk about Kentucky specifically if you don't want to. But what makes the bottom five or so states the bottom five, right? Why did Kentucky get in there? Why is New Jersey in there? Why did these states end up in that spot? The bottom five states, and we found that for the past several years, have pretty much the same thing going on. These are states with very large unfunded pension obligations. Each one of those states has an unfunded pension liability. They have, in almost all cases, unfunded health care obligations on top of that, with no money, money set aside in some cases, totally unfunded. And then four of these states, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, have issued debt year after year. Uh, in many cases, to cover those unfunded obligations or to get through the next budget year. Uh, they have amassed a large amount of debt. Uh, so they, they just break away from the rest of the states. They break away from the pack. And on top of that, most of these states have got, in, in the case of New Jersey, an entire decade where they their revenues have been insufficient to cover expenses. They don't have enough cash on hand to meet a recession. So they are doing poorly on just about every dimension with Kentucky doing slightly better than than the others. But these are the, the factors that they've all got going on in common. Yeah. As we discussed the top five states, you'll see those stories are more nuanced. Like they'll have some good things going on, some bad things going on. It's not as clear cut like they're all good in all areas. Whereas here, like Eileen mentioned, they're usually struggling in all of the areas that we look at. And in Kentucky specifically, looking at their one of their biggest issues, uh, looking at their unfunded pension liabilities relative to state income, they tripled over the period we studied between 2006 and 2016. So that's going from 21% of their state personal income to 61%. And again, that's part of that is our the accounting changes that happened uh, in 2015, but that's still a pretty significant jump. So to paraphrase Tolstoy here, I guess, all happy states are happy in different ways, but all the unhappy states are unhappy in sort of the same ways is what you guys are saying. Exactly. 
That's a great way to put it. <laughs> One of the other things that, that I noticed and, and you guys have mentioned to me is that some of these states haven't moved much. You know, so we've been doing this, this sort of similar study for several years in a row. And there's been some movement, you guys mentioned, especially sort of reporting standards have changed. But there, there hasn't been some movement among some key consistent states. I wonder if you guys can talk a little bit about that, maybe who those consistent performers are, whether that's a good or bad thing. Are they consistently bad or are they consistently good? Uh, and then maybe what goes into a state kind of staying in the same spot for a period of several years. Yeah, we have found states tend to be sticky. They tend to uh, be within the same range generally over time. A few states have moved. North Carolina has improved over the course of the study year over year. We can say that Maryland has moved up. Pennsylvania uh, has pretty much been stuck at 45 for for a number of years. Um, Although if you go back, they were doing better earlier in the last 10 years. So there's been some movement among these states. But yeah, they tend to they tend to cluster over time. We can go case by case and look at them. In fact, what we've done is we have applied this year's ranking methodology backward over 10 years. We have changed the ranking methodology a little bit, tweaked it over time. This year, we're presenting the unweighted rankings, which meaning we don't assign weights to the different dimensions of solvency. We take that methodology, we apply it back over 10 years. So you can get a ranking for your state going back to 2006. One of the other interesting things that that I kind of noticed was that there are some specific tax issues, right, in, in these states, which shouldn't surprise us, right? You know, taxes are revenues for states. That's obviously a big part of their fiscal solvency. But there are a couple of specific issues I want to touch on. The first is this idea of oil tax revenue. So some states, and Alaska is always the one that comes to mind, I think, for most people, just have this natural resource that a lot of other states may not have. And it, I imagine, really impacts their budget. So I'm wondering if that comes out in the study, if you all notice that that states that have that type of revenue do things differently? Does that help them? Yeah, it actually makes their budgets a lot more volatile. Uh, So there's a handful of states that a large portion of their budget, or at least general revenues, rely on severance taxes on oil production. And those the three states that emerge to the top for that area are uh, Alaska, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Alaska, for certain, it relies the most on these severance taxes. North Dakota following that, and then Wyoming. So uh, Pew also does a study on revenue volatility. And those three states also emerged to the top of their ranking because of these oil reliance issues. And the reason why this happens is because the oil prices can fluctuate a lot, especially in the last several years of our study, oil prices fell a lot, which led Alaska, North Dakota, and Wyoming to have declining financial positions. That's right. If you look at the trend line for Alaska, they're Budget metrics are just follow a sawtooth pattern, and it's it's basically tracking with oil prices. Because they rely so heavily on it, there's just a lot of volatility in that budget. And they also have a very unique uh, system for their permanent fund. So they've got mm-hmm. a lot of cash on hand. In the earlier years of this study, they look like they were doing fantastic, but that is an abnormally high amount of cash to have on hand, and it's not necessarily accessible. Uh, so over the course of the study, we did, in fact, change the methodology to cap Alaska, uh, to not give them that mm-hmm. extra credit for having you know, several standard deviations yeah. away from the pack in terms of, of the cash on hand, although they do better on, on the long term. So you know, there's a nuanced picture going on with those states, but yes, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. I also wanted to add, add one more interesting fact about Alaska. Uh, because of the drop in oil prices, 
They actually reported a negative uh, amount of severance taxes brought in in fiscal 2016 because they also give out tax credits to the oil producers. Because of that, they, with even the amount that came in, they had more tax credits to pay out so and re- resulted in a negative line item in that area. So just to illustrate that more. So live by oil tax revenue, die by oil tax revenue is kind of the story for Pretty those much. states, it sounds mm-hmm. like. And also putting all your eggs in one basket. I think mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a lack of diversification mm-hmm. in, in their revenues. Sure. The other tax issue that I wanted to bring up, and and maybe you kind of preempted this by mentioning North Carolina, because that's one of the states I had in mind here, was just the idea of tax reform, right? That's been a big topic. I even mentioned it as a federal issue early on in the show. But I think most notably, states like Kansas and North Carolina have embarked on some pretty ambitious, some fairly dramatic tax reform plans over the time that you guys have been taking data for this study. So I'm just kind of curious, are there wins? Are there losses? Do states that did tax reform in this period, did they do really well? Do they do really poorly? Or is it more of a mixed bag? It's a little bit of a mixed bag. We assess the states looking at how they undertook tax reform. Some states undertook a base broadening, lowering the rate, and also getting rid of exemptions, and coupled that with spending reform. North Carolina is one such state. Utah undertook a similar reform. Then we have the example of Kansas, where they lowered taxes, but they kept an exemption in place, and they didn't undertake spending reform at the same time. So what you see if you compare North Carolina to Kansas is revenues are affected by the tax reform, but you know where is spending? And when you look at the operating ratios for these states that revenues match expenses, in the case of North Carolina, they were able to make revenues match expenses. Whereas in the case of Kansas, that opened up some some problems for their for their budget solvency uh, because of the, the way they undertook tax reform. So North Carolina adhered to those those principles of base broadening, lowering the rate, getting rid of exemptions, and then also undertaking a spending reform. Olivia, you kind of prompted us a minute ago. So I want to bring us back to those top five states, right? The ones that did really well, according to your all's metrics. And again, I'll kind of ask the same question that I asked about the low-performing states, which is what makes them that way? You kind of already said that they're a little bit more nuanced. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've got a couple of examples you can help walk us through. What makes a state fiscally solvent, according to the metrics you guys have? Yeah. um, A lot of people have asked specifically about Nebraska uh, being number one. Uh, Their story is really interesting. I think Relatively, I think they're doing a lot better than a lot of states for certain because of their really great long-term position because it's such a big issue for so many states. If you have relatively lower long-term liabilities, you're going to really rise away from the rest of the pack. To kind of illustrate that, their long-term liabilities per capita ends up being about 10 standard deviations above like better than uh, most states, whereas the next state below them, South Dakota, is only four standard deviations above the mean to kind of just show how much they are performing well in that area. But at the same time, they didn't really cover expenses in fiscal year 2016 with enough revenues. I think about 99% were covered. So over time, their their revenues have been growing, but their expenses have been growing at a faster rate. So that's a concerning thing that if they don't either do some spending reform and or bring in more revenues, that's going to be an unsustainable path to be going on. Uh, they also have some unfunded liabilities that have been growing as well. So as you can see, like they have a really great long-term position, but if those unfunded liabilities aren't taken care of and that uh, expense growth issue, then it could become an issue down the line. That's right. You know, you find in common with the top five states, these are all really low debt states. Mm-hmm. Nebraska's got $18 of debt per capita. South Dakota's got $603 per capita. They're doing much better than the average state, with Florida being closer to the national average on debt. But what you have going on there is a more nuanced story with Nebraska and Oklahoma 
as Olivia mentions, in 2016, both of them did not have sufficient revenues to meet expenses. Though if we go back and look at the trend, they're pretty healthy. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a little bit of a flag. But you know, these are states also that have little to no healthcare obligations. They have average pension liabilities. They've got pretty strong cash positions. So more nuanced story, but generally speaking, they do well across more dimensions than than other states. Mm-hmm. Although I, I would always caution, you know, I think most states have got to take a hard look at their unfunded pension liabilities, even if they're doing really well today. These pensions are larger than they report them to be. And this is an area of ongoing maintenance for the states. One question I want to get back to is kind of a bigger picture question, and it's almost related to, to the one that I started with, which is why you sort of do this. And and I guess the, the question looks something like, what do studies like this tell us about what life is really like in the state? So when I look in, I see that Illinois is ranked dead last in the study. My first thought is, well, I've got family in Chicago. I visit Chicago a couple times a year. Wonderful city. Seems like a decent place to live. So for people that live in those states or for people that are interested in determining, again, what these studies sort of mean on the ground, how would you respond to someone who says, yeah, sure, there might be some fiscal problems here and there, some places to improve on the margin. But at the end of the day, we should be skeptical of these kinds of things because even states that are doing pretty poorly are still great places to live. Sure. These are all great places to live. The question we're seeking to answer is how much fiscal resiliency does a state have? How many shocks can they absorb until it really begins to affect their economy? It affects decisions that businesses and individuals make to move to that state, and that thereby affects the tax base. And when do you hit that spiral? Illinois and New Jersey's fundamentals look very poor. This has been recognized by the credit rating agencies. Uh, There's a recent study that's come out that says these Pensions may be the effect that these pensions are having on the overall fiscal picture may be irreversible mm-hmm. in terms of the level of taxation that's going to have to be brought in, the extent to which taxes are going to have to be raised and revenues will have to be found and sustained over a period of time to pay for these unfunded obligations. What's the long term effect of that? Will it drive businesses out? Will it drive people out? Uh, that's, and bo- I think both of these states and, and Connecticut is another one are aware of that dynamic. Recently, New Jersey has elected to add another bracket to its uh, taxes, taxing very high earners at, at a high rate. Yeah, it only affects a very small segment of New Jersey's population, but New Jersey's very reliant on those 1,000 or 2,000 people for its revenues. Should a few of them move, it has an effect on their revenues. It has an effect on their ability to, to pay the bills. So at some point, you, you need to look for those signals too. Are businesses and people moving to the state? Are they moving out? So these are all great places to live. They've got great histories economically, and there's no reason why they can't get back there. Fiscal discipline is is part of it. I also want to mention, even for the people that do stay behind, if we do see an exodus of people as a result of these higher taxes, we also see studies showing that as payments for pensions rise and you know taxes rise, uh, there could also be a potential crowd out of public services that the state can no longer afford. So even if you really want to stick behind in Illinois because you have family there, you really enjoy it there, uh, you could end up you know getting the short end of the stick as a result. We're kind of coming to a close because the study covers such a broad swath, both of time and geography. I want to give you all one last opportunity. Is there's anything that I sort of left on the table that I didn't bring up that you guys really think our listeners should know about the study? I'd like to mention one one thing we've found in the study is the importance of transparent accounting and the importance of standards in accounting. It's an interesting piece of our study that in the year 2015, suddenly liabilities take off for the states across the board. Why is that? It's because the accounting standards started to require states 
to report their unfunded pension liabilities on the balance sheet. We're going to see another inflection point in the coming year because states are now going to be required to report unfunded health care obligations on the balance sheet. So we expect, in fact, another uptick in the long-term liabilities of states. And that's a – it sounds like a, you know, kind of a inside baseball point about state finances, but it's an important one. To what extent are these reports giving us a true fiscal picture of state finances? And that's one question that motivated us uh, in this study. Great. Well, I think that just about does it for today's episode. As always, I like to leave our listeners with somewhere to go to learn more about the topic we just discussed. Today, it's an easy one. For those interested in checking up on their state or reading the study, you can go to mercatus.org slash state fiscal rankings, all one word. You can also keep an eye out on mercatus.org slash bridge, where Olivia's short essay series will be released in installments over the coming weeks. And since we're talking rankings today, I'll just make a quick plug. If you enjoy the Mercatus Policy Download, you should consider ranking us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or getting in touch with me to let me know how the podcast has been useful to you or what we can do to make it better. You can reach me at crease at mercatus.gmu.edu. Thanks to our guests, Eileen and Olivia, for joining us today and for a fascinating study. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.